Hey, this is Pastor A.J. Swanson from Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, Ohio. The following is our summer 2022 sermon series called One Another, in which we look at the one another passages and concepts within the Bible with the hope that we will see discipleship relationships take place within our church in the years to come. Join us on our journey of life with one another. You can find out more information about Hicksville Cornerstone Church at hixcc.org. That's hixcc.org. Enjoy this Sunday sermon. We're continuing our One Another series. Uh, tonight, today's sermon is called The Humility of the Bride and the Groom. And if you've been with us or you're just joining us, we've looked at a lot of one another examples. Let me give you some of the things that we've talked about. We talked about the Ethiopian eunuch to begin our series. We then looked at how we manned the walls like the Jews um, in Nehemiah's day as they rebuilt the kingdom. We then looked at what it means to, uh, to have unity with one another. That's a third of the one another verses within Scripture. Another third of the one another verses is to love one another, and we spent the last two weeks doing just that. And today we look at what it means to humble ourselves before one another, which is about 15% of those verses. And one clear picture that we see this displayed is in 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? With humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's be real. This idea is a very foreign concept in the West and I think specifically in America. This is a counter-cultural statement. We like humble people don't we? Who might serve us, right? We like humble people who take our orders at the restaurant and get us our food in a timely manner. We like humble people who go before us and take care of us if we're in the hospital. But we don't idolize those people. We don't look for humility many times, whether it's in our politics, our sports athletes, our favorite Fortune 500 company CEOs, celebrities, high school presidents. We are attracted to people who look like they have it all together, who claim to have all the answers, who have a manicured life that we want, who are financially stable, who are able at the end of the day to say, I don't need anyone else to make me happy. I'm, 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 I can do it all on my own. We're drawn to those people. So much so that humility is rarely a virtue in leadership. However, pride regularly is. We value a leader who can pay someone else to do the dirty work. We look up to the leader who has climbed the factory or corporate ladder and doesn't have to get messy anymore. And while all those things are by no means evil, They don't capture what it means to be a humble leader. I was thinking about this on the drive here. Um, What ways in culture that we're attracted to a humble leader? And I think of that show, Undercover Boss, right? We love the boss that gets dirty again. Why is that? That's one of the longest um, current reality shows on television, right? Why is that lived up to its longevity? We desire those things, I think, in our heart at the end of the day. You see, a servant leader, in contrast, is what Jesus does. 
We saw it last week as we considered the passage in John 13. Recall the story. Jesus and his closest friends have prepared a place to hold a feast on a high holy day. They get the food. They get the room. They make sure it's all ready for a celebration, except they forget to find someone to wash the feet of those who are participating in the celebration. Now, in all our culture, we don't have a context for that, right? If you come over to one of our houses, we might ask you to take off your shoes, right? The most I will ever do is I will point you to the hose out front if your work boots are a little muddy. But if you come to my home, I will probably not ever wash your feet. That isn't a context for what we have in our modern day culture. But think back then, they wore sandals. Their feet were filthy from walking through the streets. Remember these streets, they didn't have sewage system and plumbing and you know drains and everything. So it, it was filled with bad water, waste, animal manure, and mud. So you washed your feet like we wash our hands especially when the tables were at foot level. They ate down here, and they would recline right next to one another, so their feet would literally be in one another's faces. And yet they ate. They ate and spent the whole meal doing it. They, they, they ate, and they were busy, busy arguing over who would be the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, pride who would sit next to the Messiah, pride. But none of them took the time to wash the feet of one another. So Jesus, after the meal, which, think about it, that's a weird statement. He waited. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us. We can only speculate on this. But my guess is, is that he wanted to drive home the point that you had all this time to serve. And yet, you didn't. How much so is that in my own life? You see, they would rather eat with filth around the table than lower themselves to the level of a servant and love one another. And this revealed something very true about Jesus that even more magnified the cross. You see, Jesus displayed love for his disciples over and over again. And what did we learn from him, right? If you love someone, there is no action no calling, no calling so low, so debased that you would refuse to do it. That is what love is. Well, how does this compare to humility, Pastor? How are we getting from this call to love to call to humble ourselves? I would um, give you this this morning. Humility flows out of love. You see, it's really hard to love someone if you think you're better than them. And it's really hard to love somebody if you think they need Jesus more than you do. Listen to the words of Jesus from the same scene in John 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, 
I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so that brings us to the outline of today's sermon, and we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the humility of the bride, the humiliation of the bride, the humility of the son, and the humiliation of the son. So let's begin at the humility of the bride. Hear the words again with this concept from John 13. Do you understand what I have called you to do? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If then, if then, whoop, you call me teacher, Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. I'll say that again. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Let's focus on the one thing that I want us to really pull from this morning, and that is that a servant is not greater than his master. A servant is not greater than its master. I think it's really tempting as we look at today's um, passage to think that this has everything to do with our current occupation, our workplaces, that this is God's call in the way that I should interact with my boss on a regular basis. And while I think you can apply some truths from the passage here, I don't think that gets to the core of what this passage is talking about. What the core of this passage is, is our relationship before our Lord and Savior and Master Jesus Christ. You see, we're not greater than King Jesus. Well, duh, Pastor. (laughs) My guess is that most of you have never thought, you know what? I think I'm greater than Jesus. None of you have probably had that thought enter your head. You've probably never said that from the street corners. You've probably never looked in the mirror in a morning, looked at that beautiful smile after your first cup of coffee, and thought, you know, I'm better than Jesus. I'm greater than Jesus. None of us have ever probably thought that. But our actions reveal our hearts, do they not? Church, when you make decisions, how often do you pray about it? When you consider a job or a university in another city, is how you will grow in your spiritual relationship with Christ at the forefront or an afterthought? Do you look to see if there are good churches around where the Lord might bring you, or will you figure that out once you get there? When you plan a yearly budget, if we even take the time for it, do we consider the commands of Christ and his call to love our neighbors, especially those who are in the body of Christ? When you sign up for another season of sports, do you consider the impact that will have on your family's spiritual growth? Singles, if you decide to seek a spouse, at what date do you bring up Jesus? Married people, when you're in the midst of another fight, do you ask God to help you love like Jesus loved? Retirees, how do you fill your time? You might not be called to a specific vocation anymore, but that does not mean you now lack a calling 
students who claim Christ? Do you make decisions based on how you feel in the moment? Or would you consider how Christ would have you grow in righteousness? Final question. I'd ask you to be honest about yourself with, uh, honest to yourself with it. Is King Jesus the master of your life? Or are you? You see, humility is submitting yourself to someone else. Pride says, I don't want to, and I don't need to. We might have freedom to do a lot in our lives. We live in America. (laughs) But if you are like me, many times I use that freedom to crown myself king and find different avenues and ways to please and serve myself. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Amen. I love that one. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But here's another love one another. <laughs> but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. For a servant is not greater than his master. If you're like me, this is hard. There are many days that I gladly crown myself king. I put on the crown. I write the decrees. I play master. My actions dictate to the world around me how I really feel about Jesus in that moment. For many, you see, Jesus is a side piece. He's the bling on our necklace that we show off. He's the cool tattoo that we display to others. He's a name we drop in conversation when it's convenient. But I rarely humble myself before the king or even ask the question, God, what would you have me do? God, what would you have me do? And when we're more concerned about building our own kingdoms, and we bring that mindset to church. We no longer humble ourselves. And in that process, we bring humiliation on ourselves. You see, we, this is where we find the humiliation of the bride. I'm going to submit to you a statement this morning. That at the heart of the vast majority of church conflicts, church splits, church trauma is either a person or a group who have not humbled themselves before the Lord and have not humbled themselves before each other. Look at these commands and warnings in Scripture. It's all over. It's not like the Lord didn't expect it. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Church, if we're going to be a place of healing in this community, a place of growing in grace in this community, if we will become a bride prepared for her husband, then we must be marked with humility. For if we are not, we risk humiliation before the Lord. Does that mean that you are called to be perfect? No! 
it does mean that we're called to be honest. And many times that's harder. (laughs) You've heard it before. I don't go to church because that's where hypocrites go. Don't defend the statement. Embrace it. You and me are screwed up. Just respond with, you'll fit right in. (laughs) We're all hypocrites. We all have a moral standard, a personal one, that we break on a regular basis when it's convenient to us. We all rarely submit to the Word of God, especially when we don't think about Him over the course of the day. We all play king. Come to church. Come to Jesus. A church that pretends to be more holy, more righteous than the rest of the community sets itself up for humiliation. But a church which is humble, a church that states that they struggle, that are honest about personal sin, is seeking the Lord as they stumble through life, that is a church. That is the bride of Christ. That is the Christian that reflects the very heart of Scripture. Listen to two giants of the faith, both Paul and David. When Paul is describing his walk, he very much says, imitate me, because he is seeking the Lord. But the imitation is not built on his own holiness and righteousness. It's built upon the Lord's. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15? This is a letter sent to essentially his son, his adoptive son. This is his word. So think of a word here between a father and a son who have a beautiful relationship. I thank him, that's Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul didn't set himself up as the the bee's knees, right? He set up Jesus as the king. Listen to David. Look, we all love David. David had a heart for God. If you all know the story of David, that man messed up big. Okay? So hear his heart in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, that's when he wasn't honest with the people around him, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day longs. For day and night your hands was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. That's again being honest. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we humble ourselves before God, this is fascinating. When we humble ourselves before God, We offer a model of freedom to a world in much need of it. No need do they need to think to themselves that, well, I have to do X, Y, and Z before I show up at church on Sunday. 
I have to get this thing right in my life before I enter fellowship with God's people. I have to do on my own accord so-and-so standard before I meet Christ's righteousness that I can interact with him. That is such a prevalent idea among people who are outside the church but who greatly desire a relationship. We offer them the freedom when we are honest with sin. When we humbly seek the Lord's reliance, we model freedom. That's weird, isn't it? Submission leads to freedom. I'll say that again because it's so countercultural. Submission leads to freedom. It's the opposite of what our culture teaches. But remember last week how we talked about when we love, it's not only a moral dimension that is satisfied, but it's actually a design dimension that is satisfied. When we begin to love as Christ love, we are doing as we were designed to do. And it is the same thing with humility. It's the same thing with submitting ourselves before the Lord. When we begin to function as that uh, humble servant, then we actually are reflecting the initial design that the Lord gave us from the beginning. And because of it, we find more peace and more freedom. Brothers and sisters, I beg, to you, beg for of you to do this. The world offers cheap pleasures and knockoff imitations of love that might pass on the streets of this world but fail to provide the satisfaction we all long for. Hear the words of the Apostle James in chapter 4 of this letter. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, you, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions, again, your own kingdom. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, O sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There is much that we could mine from this passage, and I would encourage you as you go through your day to return to this passage later later in the day and rest in it. But there's one thing I really want you to focus on as we look at this, and that is the final couplet. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Child of God, this is the same command given to Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and now is exalted to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Here's the humility of the groom. Notice how humble our Lord's relationship is with the Father. This always blows my mind. 
John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. While Christ gave the call to his disciples in the upper room to serve one another and then reminds them that no servant is greater than his master, no messenger greater than the one he sent, he is also speaking of himself. Think about it. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, in love, in unity with the Father and the Spirit, humbles himself as the servant king. What does that say about the Father? The Father's heart is desires to serve. The heart, his heart is set to free the captive. His heart is to have the blind see. His heart is meek and lowly towards his creation. His desire is for your good. Oh, what amazing father we have. What does it say about the son? The same thing. The Son does not save you begrudgingly. He doesn't sit there and go, gosh, what a worthless people. I can't believe I had to come down from heaven to save them. Those words are not on the lips of your Savior. He is the humble servant who is the definition of love and desires to extend that in his kingdom towards his people. That's why the relationship of Christ is compared between a bride and a groom in Ephesians 5. You never hear him complaining about the church. He's just obeying the Father, and he does it willingly. Hear John 10, 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here again, how he humbles himself by laying down his life, Philippians 2, 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God of the universe humbled himself so that he could have a relationship with you for his glory. The king got off the throne, entered into the world as a baby, grew up among his peers, lived a sinless life, performed miracles after miracles for the sake of others, and gave up his life as a ransom so that he could seek you. In theology, we actually have a term for this. This is, uh, there's so much writing on this specific subject, and I'll bring a little bit of it to you this morning. We'd be here a long time if I went the whole book on the humiliation of Christ, but this is what it's called in theology, the humiliation of the Son. Think about the statement for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine you've never heard of the Christian faith before. The Bible is foreign to you. Imagine that you believed in some God because when you looked at creation, you cannot deny that something brings you awe, right? Even the famous atheist Richard Dawkins, when he considers the heavens, has to remind himself, right? No, this isn't created, because it screams the glory of God. So imagine that's you. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know anything about Christ. You don't know anything about the Bible. And a Christian comes into your life and it says, did you know that God became man? 
your response might be, why would God do that? For you and for his glory. God became a human. He was a toddler. He cried for his mother when he was hungry. He got bruises and cuts as he played with the other children outside in the street. He had to learn how to use a hammer and nails in his father's workshop. He got lost on family vacations. Well, his parents lost him. It's a great story. See Luke 2. He got splinters as he created tables and carts and wheels in his father's workshop. He grew hungry around supper time. He danced at his friend's weddings. He helped prepare feasts. He probably lent a hand around harvest time with the neighbors and family communities because that's what you did in that culture. Statistically, he probably saw a brother or a sister die in infancy. He was there at his father's funeral. And after that, he helped raise his brothers and sisters. God became human. Recall Philippians 2, 6 through 8, some of it's quoted earlier. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To be hung on a cross was to be cursed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. And to be cursed would be humiliating for all the world to see, and in the case of Jesus, all the cosmos to see, for even the spiritual realm was aware of what was taking place. And the enemies of Christ, Satan and his demons, rejoiced over the humiliation of Christ, for they thought, surely this is their victory. But to quote one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, there was a deeper magic that evil did not understand. There was a plan that Satan and his minions could not fully comprehend for the humiliation of the humble servant led to the exaltation of the servant king. The humiliation of the humble servant led to the exaltation of the servant king. Let me finish the verse in Philippians 2, okay? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we humble ourselves, church, when we say no to pride, when we begin to act the way that we were designed to act, we begin to find the peace that is promised to those who believe. 
This is one of my favorite parts. And we begin to shine as lights in the world to those looking for it. Hear these words continuing from this passage, Philippians 2, 12 through 15. Therefore, my beloved, that's you. That's you, church. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here we see the call to humility, much like we saw the call to love, and it echoes much of the same points as last week. So what now? Here's the hard and simple statement on the call. Humble ourselves. It's a simple statement, but it's a very profoundly difficult one. What are some of the ways you can do that? What are some of the ways you can tangibly do this? Here's the first one. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Get in the word and get on your knees. Be reminded of the grandness and the goodness of God, his humility and humiliation on your behalf, his love for you and his desire to be united to you. Remind yourself of this daily. Second, link arms with fellow believers. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. They do not exist. We need one another. We can't do this of our own. If you don't have someone you can share struggles with, if you don't have someone you confess sin to, you are setting yourself up for failure. Three, submit yourself to Jesus. This most easily happens when you're in the Word and you're understanding His Word. If you aren't in the Bible, you aren't getting to know how to humble yourselves before God. I asked almost 10 different questions earlier in the sermon. Those are the type of questions we should be used to asking as we examine the scriptures. What interferes with the calls that the Lord gives me throughout his texts? Do we actually treat him as king? Church, I'm saying this very much to myself. Do not think I'm higher than you on this, okay? I need to stop putting on my own crown. It's too heavy. My head wasn't made for it. I might think I look good in it, but it is much more of a burden than a blessing. I really need to get rid of it. (laughs) Lastly, submit yourself to one another. Submit yourself to one another. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'll mention it again. We passed it out a couple weeks ago. I'll mention the ministry team cards that are now found in your pews. How are you actively serving the body of Christ? 
How are you actively serving the body of Christ? How are you serving the community? I wanted to say that. I meant to say that last week too. Many times serving the church doesn't necessitate you having to be in this building to do it. Many of you I know are involved in growing God's way at the school. That is a blessing. I know many of you are coaches in the community that you volunteer on, and that's the way that you expand the church in your kingdom. That is a blessing, okay? So do not think for a moment that I'm discounting those ministries. Those are very much included in the call to serve the church. But how are you serving the body of Christ? How are you serving your community? How can you serve and love one another? Should be a question that we all ask on a regular basis. And may we be marked by these one another passages in the days ahead. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me.